Turn, if you would, to John chapter 12 in your Bible. Palm Sunday, as it's often called, takes its name from the feature on this day in the Gospels where those who came to the feast were carrying branches in their hands of palm trees and they went out to meet Christ. Palm Sunday. You can see that in John chapter 12, verse 13. The context is important here. We're kind of dropping into the middle of the gospel here, but the context is important. This is following the resurrection of Lazarus. This is following the anointing of Jesus by Mary with this very costly perfume early in the chapter. And that's taken place. And then look at verse 12. It says, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people, or literally that's the word crowd, who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people, again, same word crowd, went out and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign, okay, this supernatural sign. Miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Okay, so we have a snapshot. John gives us a snapshot of what's taking place that day. Now there's more that takes place as the verses continue in the chapter. And John was there. This is an eyewitness account years later. God is bringing to his remembrance, and he even references his remembrance in this portion. And so this morning, I want to look at the crowd that met Christ, the Christ who met the crowd, and I also want to look at the dynamics, the forces at work on this day that are going to lead to eventually the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. So the crowd that met Christ, verse 12 tells us they had come to the feast. This is a crowd that's marked by religious fervor. They'd come for the purpose of going to the Passover and the subsequent Feast of Tabernacles. This was the 14th day the Passover was of the first month, and then the the days of unleavened bread followed. And so this crowd that comes to meet Jesus, according to verses 12 and 13, is already interested in what's going on at the temple, interested in what's going on with the feast. It's a large crowd. It's a diverse crowd based on even what we find here in these verses. Uh, Disciples are there. Pharisees are there. And then there's just a mass of people who are there to see Jesus who had just done this very notable 
miracle. That was a part of their excitement on this day, as you can see later in the passage. Uh, it says in the end of verse 12, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was not far away, but of course, Jesus had been all over Judea, Galilee, Samaria. He'd been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He had been doing miracles. Uh, Jesus was no secret, and Jesus had just done this amazing miracle, and they hear that Jesus is present and that he's coming to Jerusalem, and as a result of that, they are going to meet him. They want to see this sight of this prophet. Some were calling him king. He's preaching about a kingdom. They want to come and see Jesus. And, uh, of course, the reason that Jesus here is near Jerusalem, and we saw, you can see back in chapter 11, is that he had been in Bethany, which is not far away, and he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And if you look at that miracle, even what John records of it, just an amazing display of supernatural power to raise someone who's already in the grave for days and the stone is over the door. One writer called that miracle the most dramatic miracle in all of Jesus' ministry apart from his own resurrection. And so this is something that if you were to look at the newspapers, if there was such a thing, it would be all the headlines, it would be uh, all the talk, it would be what was driving people's attention at this feast. And there were many who believed on him. John 11 says, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. So there was more followers. There were more followers of Jesus because of that miracle, those who believed. And then as they hear that he's coming, they take these branches, cutting the branches off of the palm trees, and they're going to meet him as Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem. And that's the scene that John captures for us. Why branches of palm trees? Well, you can see that the palm was associated with the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament, not the Passover, not the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but the Feast of Tabernacles when they were to cut, literally cut different kinds of trees, different kinds of branches, and celebrate and rejoice, as Leviticus 23 says, before the Lord. They were to wave those and rejoice in the Lord, and this is a part of that celebration. Uh, that custom that was based in the law, the commandment of the law, was carried through Israel's history. And so it seems that while it was present at that feast, it may have carried over into the other feasts as well. But there's something else going on in the first century. The Romans also used palm trees as a symbol of honor and victory. And when a king or an important person came to a city, oftentimes those who greeted that king would bring palms and wave them as a sign of glory and victory. And you can see in Rome's history, times at which, whether it's the gladiator games or uh, Julius Caesar in one of his expeditions came across a palm tree and he viewed that as an omen of his victory just because he came across this symbol of victory. But in this case, they're coming, they take these branches and come to Jesus, 
And I want you to note, this does seem not to be connected with the feast, but more a celebration of him as a person, as the king, because they're shouting along with their waving these branches. Notice it in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so they come with palms, but they also come shouting the praises, testifying to Jesus as the king of Israel. They shout it out, save now. That's Hoshiana. Na is the now. Hoshia, it's the word for salvation. It's calling for the one that they're addressing to save now. You may know that that comes from Psalm 118. Sometimes it's translated Hosanna. Verse 25 says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. We beseech you, do send prosperity. Do save is the translation of it. Hosanna, save now. That's what they're calling out upon Jesus to do. And in addition to that word from that psalm, they're also quoting this phrase, and it's in all caps in my Bible. It's an Old Testament quotation from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise for the one who comes in the authority with the blessing of the Lord himself. I think it could be understood differently when it comes to Jesus, but lest we have any mistake about what they're saying here, save now, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, there's then this explanation, even the king of Israel. Even the king of Israel. They are calling upon Jesus, this prophet who has just done this amazing miracle, who has raised some from the dead after being in the grave for four days. And they know that he's been preaching about the kingdom. They know that he's been doing all these miracles. And there's this general expectation that's rising that this is our king. This is the one who's going to Deliver us. This is the one who's going to save us. But did they understand what kind of a king Jesus was? And it's apparent from this passage and from the Gospels as we look, not even the disciples understood fully what was taking place this day. Notice it says down in verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. So the significance of what is taking place, and we'll look at that a little bit later, but does anyone really understand what's going on? Is anyone in this crowd recognizing the truth of who Jesus is? Well, we certainly would say Jesus did. These praises that came to Jesus were not lost on Jesus. He did not, remember the angel in Revelation when John fell down and worshipped him, and the angel said, don't do that, I'm your fellow servant. Jesus did not rebuke these praises. Jesus did not turn these praises away. Save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Instead of, refusing those, Jesus says, go get me a horse. Actually, go get me a donkey. And notice that. Following these praises of the crowd, we now get a perspective on the Christ who met this crowd. That's what they're saying. They have a different understanding, but when they say what they say, 
Look at verse 14. It says, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. As you look at Jesus here in verse 14, I think you'd have to say, based upon his actions, first of all, that he accepted their praises. The praises that they were giving him were true. Save now, Hosanna, the implication that he has the power and can do it. Yes, Jesus says, as he sends for the donkey. The expectation of the people was political, but what they didn't realize is that Jesus was a perfect Savior, that his salvation extended beyond the political, and that was yet to come, and it went deeper. They thought he was going to deliver them from Rome, but what they really needed to be delivered from was the sin, was from their spiritual enemy, was from the devil, from the world, from their own hearts and wickedness. Jesus, as he responds by finding this young donkey in response to their praises, he's accepting their praises, but he's acknowledging himself to be the Savior. Hosanna, Hoshiana, save now. Jesus is, is responding to that with, yes, that's who I am. There is only one Savior, as Isaiah says. Isaiah 43, verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. And so when Jesus responds to this praise of the crowd. He's responding with an affirmation that, yes, he is the Savior. Yes, he is able to save. And he also is acknowledging that he's coming with the blessing, with the authority, and I would say, in addition to that, the identity of God. This is God in the flesh. So if you were to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that could be understood from a prophet standpoint as he's come in God's name to give a message. But when it comes to Jesus, yes, he came in God's name to give a message, but he also came as God in the flesh to deliver the message, which was himself. And so this message about him being the king of Israel, as it said there in verse 13, is affirmed as Jesus asks for the donkey and sits on the donkey and proceeds ahead. Domingo mentioned this morning, the beginning the response of the Pharisees. Remember what the Pharisees said? They, they asked Jesus to rebuke his disciples. And Jesus' response was, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. I spent a little time in Australia and became familiar with, I know it's an English phrase too, but they say the words, when you're exactly right, spot on. Ever heard that phrase, spot on? When these pilgrims who had come to worship were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, when Jesus reaches for the colt and sits on the colt, he's saying, spot on. This is exactly right, though they did not understand. And so Hosanna, save now, is a proper cry to Jesus. It's a prayer. In terms of someone who has yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that could actually be a saving prayer. Save now, recognizing Jesus for who he is as God, 
knowing that he has the power to save, but of course it's in view of what he's about to do on the cross. But Hosanna is save now, save me. And what a wonderful day it is when someone calls out upon the Lord in that way. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every person who is born again, every person who comes into the presence of God when they leave this life needs to pray. Not necessarily just those words, but the substance of that. Save me. Save me now. Deliver me from my sins and my wickedness. You could pray that prayer, Hosanna, as a prayer for sanctification. You ever find yourself burdened under your sins? And you feel discouraged and disheartened and you want to change and you want to be more like Christ and sometimes you could just say Hosanna Hosanna save now now the Lord in sanctification doesn't save us all right away he doesn't perfect us but there's coming a day when he will glorify us and progressively through the course of our lives he does save us That word Hosanna is also a prayer for a believer who acknowledges his power to save and longs for him to come and bring salvation full to this world so that the world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord just as the waters cover the sea. We long for his coming. We long for his millennial kingdom. We long for his eternal kingdom. And Hosanna, that that word of praise, save now, is really a word that could be on the lips of believers throughout eternity as a word of praise to the only Savior. And so I don't know if you've ever said Hosanna initially cried out for salvation or Hosanna save now, change me Lord, or Hosanna, but that's certainly a prayer that we can all pray as we look to our Lord. Hosanna is such a beautiful word, calling upon the Lord to do what he what his very name identifies him as, Jesus, his name is Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. Hosanna is to call upon that unique, the only Savior, to do what only he can do, to call upon him for salvation. I want you to notice as Jesus finds that young donkey and sits on it, there's a recognition, of course, that those praises are true, There's also a full awareness of his identity. Sometimes people speak about Jesus as if he did not know who he was, as if there was some kind of a confusion about his identity until everything happened in his life. One person said, Nothing under heaven is more fully proved than that the Lord Jesus knew himself to be the God-man who had been promised and expected for thousands of years. This is one of those moments in the Gospels which is a clear testimony to his knowledge of his identity and his desire to communicate that to everyone looking on. We have just a portion here of the words of Zechariah chapter 9. If you want to turn back there for just a moment, Zechariah 9. Zechariah Malachi, so second to the last book. If you were to read the context of Zechariah 9, you can see that Israel's being oppressed. But because God is going to deliver them through their king, they won't be oppressed anymore. 
You can see that in verse 8 where it says, But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them any more, for now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just or righteous and endowed with salvation. That means he possesses the ability to save. Only God has that. Humble, it says. And mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why did Jesus get two based on the gospel records? Not here, but we look at the other gospels and we see that Jesus had a colt and its mother. It was to show the truthfulness of this statement. But this is the passage that that we're pointed to because John says, as it is written. So John is reflecting upon this scene and he says, Jesus did this. Jesus took that colt just like it is written hundreds of years before in order to fulfill this prophecy. What's the prophecy? That the king is coming. He's coming to his people. In the gospels, he's coming to Jerusalem. He's coming as the righteous one the perfect one, the one who's never sinned. He's coming endowed with salvation, the ability, the power to save, and he's coming humbly. And part of that is just the picture. Jesus is not mounting a war horse. Instead, he's riding a donkey, the colt of a donkey, on which no one had ever ridden into Jerusalem. Why? To show his humility? to demonstrate that he was the Prince of Peace. He was not here to start a battle. Of course, there's a spiritual battle taking place. But it's interesting because Zechariah says this, but then the very next verse says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. That would be north of Israel and a whole region. And the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a testimony to the kingdom of the Messiah, but also to the nature of Jesus as king, humble, meek, riding not on a war horse, but coming on a donkey, the prince of peace. And that's the expectation, that that is his desire, that is who he is. F.W. Krumacher wrote a couple of books on the suffering of Christ, his passion. He says, what does he, Jesus, testify but by this mute but significant action? Remember, Jesus is getting on the cold. He's going through, and the time that he speaks is when he's called to rebuke his disciples. But otherwise, he's just silent. Krumacher says, what else than that the prophet's words are being fulfilled in his own person. What else than that he is the promised king of glory, just in having salvation and bringing peace to his people? What else than is if he had said, it is I whose dominion shall extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It is I, therefore rejoice, O daughter of Zion, and shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, the the phrase there in verse 9, when it says, O daughter of Zion... O daughter of Jerusalem. That phrase could be differently interpreted. Some would interpret it as 
an individual girl who is now being rescued along with all the others by the, the power and might of this king. Not that he's rescuing just her, but he's rescuing all the people. And so the ones who are vulnerable, the ones who don't have the battle armor, are safe. Another way to interpret it is that the daughter of Zion or the daughter of Jerusalem is the city or the cities or the villages that surround Jerusalem and that would call Jerusalem the mother city. In other words, the call is not just to a single individual, but to the cities around this capital city of which Jesus is the king. And I think that's an appropriate way to interpret it. This is a call to all Israel to rejoice. This is Israel's king. And Zechariah comes out and says it. It says, behold, your king is coming to you. You're safe in his shadow. He will protect you. He will bring salvation, but the salvation that Jesus brings, the salvation that he would bring, if they had kept reading and understood what the prophet said versus the popular expectation, they would understand that his ministry of salvation had much more than they had in mind. This is not a political deliverer only. And I don't want to miss that. He is a political deliverer. You can see if you read through this chapter as well as the rest of Zechariah that this king, Zechariah's Messiah king, is a king, according to chapter 14, who will be king over all the earth. But prior to that being king over all of the earth, over all of the nations, there was a There was a sacrifice that had to take place. There was a fountain, Zechariah 13, that had to be opened for cleansing for the people of Israel. Zechariah 12 speaks of the Messiah as one upon whom the Jews would look. They would look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. So there was an expectation that for this king, yes, he would be a political deliverer, but there was a deliverance from sin. There was a dealing with sin that this Messiah king had to do. And little did they know, but it was explained to them afterwards, and we understand from the gospel now that it had to do with his own sacrifice of himself laying down his life upon the cross, shedding his blood so that they could be saved from their sins. That's the king that Zechariah is foretelling. And if we read through Zechariah, you can see it in comparison with the Gospels. Turn, if you would, back to John chapter 12. So when John says here, as it is written, verse 14, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Yes, there's reason not to fear. The reason is, if you put your trust in this king, you will be safe. You'll be safe in the future from those political enemies, but even Jesus, remember, laid down his life and was killed. He was crucified by his political enemies. It's a salvation that he was providing. Jesus is also, in doing what he's doing, by verse 14, finding that young donkey sitting on it, coming into Jerusalem, He's stirring expectations. They're praising him. 
his response to their praises is to sit on the donkey to come into Jerusalem to accept the praises. And even when he's called to rebuke his disciples, he refuses to. And he says, if they stop saying this, the stones are going to cry out. It's interesting that what's happening here is Jesus is stirring the expectations of this crowd, but he's also doing something else. He is purposely pursuing the work that God had called him to, to lay down his life as the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. See, Jesus didn't hide. He did until it was the right time because he knew there was an hour. And even when he was hiding, I say that, he was ministering. But when he was not in Jerusalem, there was an anticipation of coming to Jerusalem even though he knew that his life was under threat there. You can see that as you read through the rest of the passage. So Jesus is stirring expectations. He's receiving the praises. He's getting the donkey. He's sitting on it. He's going through this whole procession. And there's a crowd swell of rejoicing in Jesus, proclaiming him to be the king. And again, as we look at, we've been looking at the Christ who met the crowd. We need to look at the dynamics. What's going on? Well, you have the disciples, verse 16, referred to this a little earlier, who did not understand. But if I could put it this way, a fuse was lit. A fuse was lit. Dynamics comes from the word dunamis. We get the word dynamite from it. Jesus has lit a fuse, but the fuse for his disciples was longer than the fuse he's lighting for the people on this day. That fuse is going to continue to burn. Eventually, if you look at verse 16, it says, When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so later on, his disciples... That fuse has come to the point where they're seeing, they've seen everything happen and there's been an explosion because Jesus has died and risen again and the Spirit comes and the disciples believe and they can't stop talking about what has taken place. But that's not this day. This day, they don't know what's going on. But the fuse has been lit. Look at the other fuse that's being lit on this day. Look at verse 17. It says, So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. Jesus had done that miracle as he stirred the expectations of the followers. Part of what stirred them was the fact that he had done this notable miracle. It's my understanding that There was a rabbi, maybe more than one, that taught that when a person died, the soul hovered around the body for several days and then went wherever it was supposed to go. So Jesus coming on the fourth day was significant to show that Lazarus was not only dead and gone, but even according to their superstition. I mean, there's no possibility that he's going to rise again. But Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes walking out of the tomb. Grave clothes included. Jesus is stirring their expectations. And here, because he did that with a crowd, 
witnessing. Now that crowd who is with him are coming to Jerusalem and they're telling other people what he's done. I saw it myself. I saw him. I saw them roll away the stone. I saw him walking out of the tomb. I saw Jesus say those words. I saw the miracle. This is the Messiah, you could see them saying. And notice John calls attention to that. He says, for this reason, verse 18, also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Now, I don't have a lot of time to develop that particular point, but the word sign in verse 18 is significant. Remember, Paul said the Jews seek for a sign. They saw the sign of the resurrection But if you read through the Gospels, there are times when they're asking Jesus to show them a sign. For instance, in John chapter 6, when Jesus had done the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fishes, they said to him, what do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. I think the, the reference there was Jesus, yes, he had done a miracle, but Moses actually, Moses actually got bread from heaven. That was the miracle that, Je, that, that, that Moses did. And so this miracle of multiplying the loaves, the implication is it wasn't as great. But then what does Jesus say? I'm the true bread that has come out of heaven. I am the bread of life. The bread actually did come out of heaven, but it came in the form of a person. But these sign followers or sign seekers, as you might call them, that's all they are on this day. They're looking for a sign. They're looking for an earthly king. They're not looking for salvation. They want to see something. They want to thrill. But I believe John is pointing them out here, not because they believe, but because they don't believe. And he's drawing attention to the reason that they are there. So that's another dynamic. You've got a crowd of people. They're not believers. They're just looking for a sign. A sign had been done. They're seeing the person who did the sign. They understand that he claims to be a king. But notice there's one more crowd. Look at verse 19. It says, The Pharisees said to one another. There's also the frustrated Pharisees, I'll call them. Sign seekers the ignorant disciples before them, but the Pharisees are frustrated. One writer said that, that based on the way that things are said here, it looks like the real strict Pharisees, the kind of fanatic Pharisees are saying to the milder Pharisees, the ones who are wanting to delay and wait, the, the ones who are stricter are the ones saying what they're saying here. You see, you're not doing any good. It's not going to help to wait. You're waiting, and look what's happening. The world is going after him. There's just a, a frenzy now and an excitement that's not going to go away. We, we thought we might be able to do something, but you wanted to wait till after the feast. The feast has actually encouraged things, and the world is going after him. Now, do you think this is an accident? No, remember, Jesus silenced the Pharisees. Jesus is, you ever heard the phrase, pushing the envelope? Jesus is pursuing the will of the Father for him, which was to lay down his life, was to give his life. 
The Pharisees are frustrated because Jesus is gaining in popularity. But what is Jesus doing? Well, he's pursuing the will of God. He is walking he he is walking the road to the cross. And as this frenzy of excitement builds, it only goads the Pharisees into doing what they wanted to do anyway, which was to kill him. Now, if you were to look at those three groups, the ignorant disciples, the sign seekers, frustrated Pharisees, sometimes you try to identify where would I be in all of this. Well, I don't know that I want to be with any of them. But there's one person who I think we, we ought to identify with, and he's actually the writer. John is writing this years, decades later, and he has come to a right understanding of what is taking place this day. He didn't understand it on the day. Remember what he said. He said the disciples, verse 16, these things the, his disciples did not understand at the first. John was included in that. John saw all these things, and what we just looked at in Zechariah, what we're considering about who Christ is and the nature of his kingdom, that, that went right by John. Went right by all the disciples. But now, John knows. And now, John is telling John is not only telling us the praises on that day, but he's telling us the significance of those praises found in verse 13 match with the reality of who Jesus is and the prophecy of Zechariah. This is coming true. This is the prophecy that was uttered hundreds of years before that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so what is John trying to do? Why is John writing his gospel? John wants those who hear the gospel, who read the gospel, to come to a conviction about something. And it has to do with who Jesus is. If you just turn in closing to the end of the book, John chapter 20, what does John want his readers to know? John chapter 20. It says, therefore, many other signs, verse 30, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. See that John writes about those who are ignorant, he writes about those who were sign seekers. They were not truly believing in the significance of who Jesus was. And, of course, there's the angry, frustrated Pharisees as well. But John wants us to know what really happened that day. He wants us to really acknowledge and recognize who Jesus Christ is. And I just ask you today, do you? Do you recognize who he is? Now, even, even those who have come to recognize him need to understand more about him, grow in your knowledge of him, but there are some who have yet to understand. 
I have no doubt there are some here this morning who do not truly know who Jesus Christ is. And this is the truth about him. He is the king. He is a humble, gracious king. He will be the king of all the earth. He is sitting in heaven at the right hand of God even now. Scriptures say, teach that he is Lord. That's a reference to his identity as God, but it's also a reference to his authority as the judge of all, as the one who has supreme authority over all mankind. That's the message that the disciples preached and proclaimed throughout the book of Acts. That's the message of the gospel we proclaim today. Is Jesus king? Yes, he's king. Is he a savior? Yes, he's savior. Is he worthy of Hosanna? Yes, he's worthy of Hosanna. Hosanna now, Hosanna through my life, Hosanna to eternity. Save now. He's able. He will. But you have to call upon him. You have to call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. This is not a universalism. It's not a universal salvation. It's for those who call on the name of the Lord. And that Lord is rich to all who call upon him. He's able to save every single one. And we could have someone here today who needs to call upon him for salvation. You could say, Hosanna, save me. You need salvation. May the Lord help you today to look to him. Let's pray. Lord, as we bow before you this morning, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you for who Jesus is. Not who we think him to be, but who he truly is. The only Savior, the Lord, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the coming King. And Lord, we for those of us who've come to know him, this passage in the light of John's perspective encourages us that what we've come to know about him is the truth. And you have opened the eyes of our understanding. You've shined the light of the gospel into our minds and hearts. We do pray, Lord, for anyone here among us, and certainly, Lord, for those that we're seeking to reach to, that with the gospel message, that they would come to know who Jesus truly is, that they would bow the knee and find refuge and safety in his salvation. Thank you that he is a perfect Savior. And we ask, Lord, even today, that our hosannas would ring in praise to you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for washing us by your grace if we believed in Christ from our sins in his blood. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.